0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Lineage Speaks, the podcast. I'm your host, Lena Don. And today, sharing an excerpt from her book, Raised on Freedom, Favorite Tales of a Boomer Kid, we have Gail McGuire. Gail McGuire doubted she would ever write a book. She had been an intrepid tomboy, a free spirited young adult had outstanding children who produced superb grandchildren and achieved a successful career in information management a psychic her friends and children told her she would write a book and so she tried now she is a first-time author of a childhood memoir gail was born and raised in southeast idaho and has lived in seattle washington las vegas nevada in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Gail currently resides in Las Vegas with her family.
1: Raised on Freedom, Favorite Tales of a Boomer Kid is a childhood memoir featuring stories of my childhood that I've shared with my kids and grandkids through the years. I was a light revised child growing up during the 1960s in the small town of Pocatello, Idaho. Most of my days were spent scrambling through neighborhood streets, chasing bold schemes and roaming the idyllic open spaces. And ignoring my family's hardships, I happily let my imagination thrive, even in the face of growing turmoil. Reviewers describe Raised on Freedom as a grand adventure with descriptive, entertaining and humorous storytelling that makes you feel part of the adventure. A golden childhood, rich in unrestrained life experiences that opens the floodgates to one's own childhood memories. Entertaining, heartwarming, and uplifting. Raised on Freedom is available on Amazon. The readings I've selected to share from my book today are childhood and young adult experiences that shaped my spirituality and faith. Where much of the book is about the many childhood adventures featured in the memoir, I appreciate the opportunity to share the spiritually oriented aspects of the book. I'll begin with this paragraph from an early chapter in the book, which presents the underlying thesis around which all the adventurous storytelling is bound. Chapter 2, People and Places If we are a product of our environment, mind forged me in freedom. I was born into a family and a time that entrusted me with freedom. Freedom relies on enduring faith that the recipient holds a capacity to manage all that freedom may bring them. Along with the support and guidance of loved ones, that faith is the most glorious gift. Freedom is not a guarantee of safety from pain and heartbreak. On the contrary, freedom empowers us to gather virtue and strength in response to the pain and heartbreak indemnified in our humanity. At the same time, freedom allows us to explore and embrace in our own unique way, the beauty and joy that lie in wait for our discovery across the landscape and among the people of our lives. The next excerpt is an important one to me. It is a powerful story of divine intervention my dad experienced during World War II in the Pearl Harbor attack response. He shared this with me just weeks before he passed. Chapter three, Mom and Dad. It was not long after mom and dad met and dated for a brief time. The dad joined the Navy at the youthful age of 16. Grandma Harper signed for him to join. He was in boot camp when, on December 7, 1941, just after Dad's 17th birthday, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. Dad was immediately sent to Pearl Harbor to help respond to the attack, denied the routinely granted leave following that stint. Men returning from the war as a rule did not speak of their traumatic experiences. Dad was of this guild His role in the response to that attack would mark him for life. I only learned of the details of dad's Pearl Harbor experience from him when I was in my late twenties, just weeks before he passed. The telling of his story came with him presenting me with a large rectangular photo album. The white leather cover was yellowed with age and a silver bomber plane was embossed upon its front. It was bordered in gold stars and each corner imprinted with various naval vessels. Its contents were a treasury of the days on his days on the island. Dad had populated the black heavy stock paper pages with tropically set pictures held in tack with black stick-on corner fasteners. I pictured him as a young sailor while I studied the photographs. Dad's eyes were round and bright. I thought him to be a most handsome sailor. His boyish smile was wide, showing a row of perfectly straight, perfectly white teeth. His skin was porcelain smooth. Navy doctors had not marked him yet, but these pictures were taken amidst a sequence of his stays at various Naval hospitals. At Pearl Harbor, dad was on the deck of his station ship when a ship next to it burst apart in a searing blaze. The explosion sent flying debris and screaming sailors into the air to fall into the furious ocean waters, black with oil. He was an adept swimmer and was ordered to use that skill in the sickly murk to clear the harbor of the debris, be it ship or body parts. It was the burning oil from those waters that caused the Navy doctors to leave their mark upon him, trying to cut the infectious filth from his pores. He swam for hours in the burning waters, pulling spoils with the explosion to shore. I learned later from an old friend of his that he saved another sailor's life that day, hauling the barely conscious man to shore. This part of the tale was too sacred for spoken words and Dad would not tell of it. As he did his duty, the oil upon the water was thick and slimy. The air was full of smoke from the oil fires burning in the water all around him. The swimming was a ghastly and almost impossible toil, but he went out repeatedly. Indeed, he went out one too many times. On this last lap, he realized too late that he had gone out too far. He was gasping and weary, and his strong strokes began to fail him. The revolting taste of salt and oil filled his mouth, and he retched as the rolling waves tossed him and turned his stomach. Fright invaded his young mind, and he surrendered to the fact that he could not make the swim back to shore. He was barely staying above the acrid deluge, When he looked up to see the last thing he remembers of that nightmarish moment, a hand reached out to him from the smoldering gray sky and he grabbed a hold. Dad's next conscious moment found him in the hospital. He had survived to become our father. Until I was five years old and we moved into the house my dad built in the new Pocatello suburb called Indian Hills. My family lived in a small two-bedroom house. There were three kids by then, my two older sisters and me. My youngest brother was born when we lived in the new house. Each of us kids were six years apart in age. Because our house was so small, I slept in a crib in my parents' bedroom until we moved. This is a dream that I had about the age four that was very vivid and stirring to me. As an adult, a psychic told me the dream was a past life experience. I do believe that as children, we are so much more open to spirit. We are like little receivers free of the static that develops later. Chapter four, earliest memory. The second dream was profound for a three or four year old to have. In this dream, I'm a young woman in my early 20s walking through a lovely park in a big city. It is a beautiful spring day. The leaves on the trees are bright green, and there are colorful flowers all about. There are city buildings on the streets surrounding the park. Cars and horse-drawn buggies move around the streets. I am elegantly dressed in a light blue empire waist dress with layers of white fabric. The dress is of Edwardian era, 1910s to early 1920s style, with a trumpet bell shaped skirt that flares slightly over my hips and widens at the hemline just above my ankles. I am wearing white gloves that extend up over my wrists with little buttons on the side. I have strawberry blonde hair done up in the style of a Gibson girl. I hold a lace trimmed parasol over my shoulder to shade me from the sun as I stroll through the park. At one point I sit on a park bench and soon a man comes along and sits on the other end of the bench. He is also well-dressed in a pinstripe suit and a fine derby hat. I know him to be a wealthy, influential man and an acquaintance of my family. I am also aware that, though unmentionable in polite society, his money comes from ill-begotten means, such as through a crime syndicate. Because of this, I do not turn to look in his direction when he engages me in conversation. I am very proper, and my principles and self-respect call for discretion. Soon, he scoots closer to me on the bench, leans toward me, and asked me to marry him. In reply, I loudly exclaimed, no. I woke up sitting in the crib and heard myself say, no. I looked over to see if I had awakened my parents, but they were sleeping. The emotional response and seemingly genuine experience shook me. I soon went back to sleep but I have never gotten over the vivid images of that dream. I was exposed to various religious and spiritual perspectives as a child, Mormon, Catholic, and non-denominational oriented perspectives. Chapter five, early Indian Hills days. Our family did not go to church often. And when we did, it was to the Mormon church. Mom would drop us kids off at church and pick us up after services. I remember her attending only once, and she cried through the service. It touched a place of sadness in her that I did not understand, and I did not ask for her to clarify. I often sensed an undertone of tenderness in Mom. I associated this with the hardship and loss exemplified in the stories that she, her mom, and sisters told us kids as we decorated loved ones' graves each Memorial Day. I also attended Catholic church with an Nizer family occasionally. I noted the contrast between the two churches. One was modern, bright, straightforward, and unadorned with any great deal of religious symbolism. The other was beautifully ornate and rich in religious symbolism with light diffused through stained glass windows to create an ambience that rang of ancient bearing. Beyond the contrast between the two, I deciphered the common teachings among them. The lessons of love through God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. To top off the input to my spiritual bearings, Dad taught me that I need not attend a church at all to talk to God. That concept appealed to me too. Overall, I was afforded a spectrum of spiritual teaching that supplied a foundational belief and thirst for spiritual learning to succor me through the remaining trips around the sun. These teachings led to another bedtime revelation one evening, just before I fell asleep. I learned to say my prayers before I slept the prayer was now I lay me down to sleep I pray the Lord my soul to keep and if I die before I wake I pray the Lord my soul to take following my recital of this litany I proceeded to beseech God to bless everyone I could recall it worried me that I might miss someone what if something happened to them But I did my best every night to include everyone that needed protective prayers, from my parents, family, and pets, to my friends and their families and pets. On one such occasion, I started thinking about Jesus. Who was this guy? I was just imagining what he might be like. I thought, I bet he's just like a kind and strong big brother. As I pondered what Jesus must be like, I had the most amazing feeling and sensory experience. It was an all-around feeling of safety and love that came over me. A soft golden light was all about me. I lay still, enthralled in the episode, hoping to keep it going even though I knew it would pass. As I reveled in this, I got the clear message that I was right. Jesus was the kind and strong big brother, and he would always love me. For many bedtimes after I thought him to be there with me and felt a palpable presence, I knew our connection to the core of my being. Through the peaks and valleys of my life's spiritual journeys, this resonated with me. It has served me well especially in times of trouble. A great deal of the book features the adventures I had with my pack of friends. Their parents, like mine, believed that kids should be outdoors playing and were not inclined to overly supervise our activities. They themselves had lived through hard times, experiencing the Great Depression and World War II. They learned to be self-reliant because their families needed them to be. They expected the same of their children and believed them to be perfectly capable of taking care of themselves. My friends in the book are Martha and Vaughn, sisters, and Jackie and Trina, also sisters. In this story, we are around the age of seven or eight, and I have my first encounter with a guardian angel that has visited me three times in my life. Chapter eight, running with the pack. Another project we applied our construction skills to was building a raft. Our vision was to build a raft that would allow us to float down the Portneuf River. We would embark upon our very own Huckleberry Finn-like adventures. We had no clue about raft building or about how to navigate a river on a raft. Those were mere details we were not allowed to stand in the way of progress. We scrounged for building materials again. We got what we could from my dad's construction sites around the neighborhood, and miscellaneous items from Martha and Pond's garage and Jackie and Trina's garage. We rummaged up what we thought were enough pieces of shabby two by fours and scraps of plywood. We also had a hammer and nails, so we started building. We assembled the raft in the empty lots across from my house. It was like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. After rigorous deliberation, we had our layout. We put four rows of two by fours running one direction and nailed four running crosswise to them to bind them together. We nailed the scrap pieces of plywood on the top of the two by four structure and on the bottom. It required a lot of nails but we cobbled it together. It looked like a raft. It only fit two of us at a time, but we would take turns. Before its maiden voyage on the portniff, we put it to test in the irrigation ditch. We hauled it over to the widest part of the ditch. This was a bit west of the empty lots, behind some houses and in a spot where there was a man-made lamber to cross the ditch and a flow control device for the ditch water. We tossed the raft into the water. Here was the big test. Jackie hopped onto the raft from the ditch bank while we cheered her on, excited to see how our raft performed with all the confidence in the world. It seemed to float there for a second, but then it slowly began sinking. Jackie stood in the middle of the raft while the water rose over her feet and up her shins until the raft hit bottom and she was more than knee deep in ditch water. Jackie shrugged her shoulders and dejectedly climbed up and out of the ditch. The raft rose to the surface again. We could not figure it out. Why wouldn't it stay afloat? Wood floats, right? So why won't it float? We pondered and scratched our heads. What have we done wrong? We had no answers. We were crestfallen. After all that work, there would be no Huckleberry Finn adventures drifting down the Portniff River on this thing. What now? We were nothing if not resourceful. Heaven knows we were adaptable. We could take lemons and make lemonade. We thought of another amusing activity we could engage in with the slow submerging raft. Jackie had shown the way. From the bank of the ditch, we took turns jumping onto the raft from the ditch bank and standing still. Then, just before the raft could sink to the bottom, the object was to jump to the opposite bank. I jumped onto the middle of the raft from one ditch bank, sank with it a bit and jumped off to the other bank just in time. The raft floated back up and Martha jumped and repeated the routine. Then each of us were taking our turns, laughing hard, shrieking when the chilly water started coming up over our bare feet and squealing as we just jumped off just in time. What a blast! This restored our confidence. We may not sail down the river, but this was a lot of fun, too. It was like whack-a-mole with a raft, only different. As the excitement built with our new game, we started jumping on and off the raft two by two. This was trickier because the raft sank faster. It was also more fast-paced and fun. On one of those repetitions, Fawn and I jumped onto the raft. She jumped off. But I could not. This just shocked me at first. My right foot hurt badly, and when I attempted to pull my foot up, it stuck to the raft, really stuck. I stood there as the raft sank to the bottom. Martha, Fawn, Jackie, and Trina were yelling, Jump off! Come on, gal, jump! After a few seconds, in my shocked state, I looked up at them and said, I can't. I'm stuck. It was about this time that blood started rising in the water. Everyone noticed it. Oh, we had a scene going now. Everyone was jumping up and down on the ditch banks, yelling and hollering. Except for me. I wasn't doing any jumping at all. Oh, no, Gal! What are you going to do? Gal? Oh, no. Martha, Fawn, Jackie and Trina yelled repeatedly, jumping around. Soon, they started hollering, help, help, oh no, help. By this time, I knew what had happened. It was one of my badly nailed-in nails that was sticking up on the surface of the raft. My foot had landed on it, and the nail head went through the meat of my foot, between my fourth and little toes. I bent down to feel the source of pain, and sure enough, I could feel the nail head sticking up right through the top of my foot. The more I pondered this, the more it grossed me out. That jump had nailed me to the raft. I thought of the dirty ditch water getting into the wound. I did not know what to do. I did not think I had the guts to yank my foot off that nail. The blood flowed some more. I started to sweat. And then the most astonishing thing happened. It was something I thought about often over many years to come. It seemed overpowering and mystical in nature. A young man came running out of nowhere. I knew the people around the neighborhood, but I had never seen him before. He jumped right into the ditch, stood on the sunken raft, put his hands under my arms and swiftly lifted me up off the raft. He had to lift me over his head. He then put an arm under my legs and his other under my shoulders and climbed out of the ditch. He was a good looking young man, likely in his early 20s, and was of medium height and build. He had almost white blonde hair and deep blue eyes. I didn't scream or even say a thing when he lifted me up off the raft. Martha, Fawn Jackie and Trina were quiet now too. I studied his face as he carried me all the way home. He walked through the yard of the house we were behind and then up Chinook Street to my house. Blood continued to drip from my foot onto the road. My foot throbbed and throbbed. I do not remember saying anything. I do not remember telling him which house was mine. He rang the doorbell. Mom answered the door. She looked at my bleeding foot and ran to get a towel. The young man set me down onto my one good foot while mom wrapped the towel around the injured one. Mom was fit to be tied. As usual, it baffled me that she was acting so mad at me when I was obviously in need of some sugar in bedside manner. In all the drama, I lost track of my hero that had come to save the day. He was just gone mom helped me hobble to the bathroom climb up on the bathroom counter and had me stick my bloody muddy foot in the sink she cleaned and soaked my foot she applied some iodine which stung like the dickens and bandaged my foot later i had to have a stupid tetanus shot that hurt like the dickens too soon after i gave it my best to find that young man that saved me from being nailed to a raft I wandered around the neighborhood, gawking around for a sight of him. I asked Debbie if she knew him. Was he in high school with her? Did Stephen Gary know him? Did Ronnie know him? No luck with that. I continued keeping my eye out for him for a long time. I did not find him anywhere. I had a funny feeling about the whole thing. It seemed surreal and otherworldly to me. I thought of him as an angel that swooped down to save me and then just swooped right back into the heavens. As if to confirm this notion, he showed up two more times in my adult life. He appeared suddenly each time, and when I turned with a double take to watch him walk away, poof, he was gone. In these encounters I was not nailed to anything, they were just welfare visits. I hope to see him again someday. This next story is a haunting experience my next older sister Debbie had when she was around 15 years old and I was named age 9 or 10. It was my earliest awareness of such manifestations. It was not my last experience with them, though. Chapter 11. Scary Stuff. Debbie and some girlfriends of hers started messing around with a cult when she was living at home. It started with candles and summoning spirits to answer questions by expressing answers in the flames motion. It advanced to using a Ouija board. It culminated in a terrifying visitation. Debbie's bedroom was in the basement and after Patsy eloped, Debbie was down there alone. I have always found basements to be creepy and ours was no exception especially the dark and ominous furnace room I avoided. But what happened to Debbie in our basement was a stuff of nightmares. She had been sleeping soundly. It was the middle of the night when she woke to a sound of pounding on the walls in the hallway. Her mind searched for an explanation as she struggled to fully awaken, waiting for her eyes to make out the things around her in the darkness. Is that mom, she thought? then dismissed the idea as absurd. Is that angry about something, she thought, and found out to be equally absurd. Are Stephen Gary trying to scare me, she hoped. But she knew it could not be. It was the middle of the night and not even Stephen Gary and their hijinks would break into the house. There could be no logical explanation because none existed. As this dreadful realization sunk in, she froze. Her breathing became shallow. She was afraid to move a muscle. The pounding moved. It marched. It stalked. It throbbed up the hall to her door. It rattled the door. Then it retreated, hammered its way back down the hall. Without pause, it strode back toward her door bam on the right side of the hall bam on the left bam 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 closer and closer to the door this cast debbie's whole being into a petrified state the doorknob turned side to side but the door did not open bam 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 each round trip in the hallway amplified the sound Becoming progressively stronger, more intrusive, and demanding, it became thunderous. Debbie was shaking now in the grip of terror, trapped by an unseen force loudly dominating the only exit from her room. Bam! Her eyes filled with tears. Bam, Bam, Bam! Cold sweat pricked her brow. This was the web and fly's horror as a spider approached. This was the rabbit's abject fright as the wolf closed in. An evil beyond her wildest fears was haunting Debbie. She had had mononucleosis when she was younger and was delirious with fever. Mom and I had been frightened for her. She veered in and out of dreams and hallucinations that were brutally scary. She moaned and cried out, But this was not that. She was not sick. She was well. She was not dreaming. She was lucid. This was not a hallucination. It was starkly and undeniably happening. It was more than just the noise. It had a hostile bearing, an ominous presence, palpable and overwhelming. It reached a crescendo. It caught her whole conscious existence in a maddening trap of banging walls, the rattling door, the turning doorknob, the menacing manifestation. Her survival instinct kicked in, her spiritual foundation, her defense. It took time to process her thoughts once she realized that this was not gonna go away on its own. It took time for her to choose not to be its prey, to make a stand against this evil. Could the fly escape the spider approaching? Could the rabbit break away? She mustered every ounce of courage and slipped quietly out of her bed and onto her knees. We had learned in Sunday school that good triumphs over evil and light overcomes darkness. We learned of a protection beyond all threats as eternal children of God. We believed in angels. The knowing that nothing can usurp the love of God was written on our hearts. She prayed. On her knees, with her elbows on the bed, she clasped her hands in front of her and focused her attention there. She began to pray, line by line, plea by plea, The fear began to lose its sway. A sense of divine might began to surge in her heart. She prayed and prayed. The light came. A small rectangle of light showed through the room, ankling down toward her. She felt the light as much as she saw it with her eyes. She prayed. The appearance of the light diminished the volume and impact of the evil's pounding. The light grew. The more it grew wider, higher, brighter, the more the noise faded. At last, the incessant pounding and malevolent presence vanished, driven back beyond the veil from whence it came. Peace descended upon Debbie, and she knew it was over. She and God's love had prevailed. In closing, I sum up what my rollicking fun and free childhood had bestowed to me. Chapter 15, Epilogue. Raised on freedom as I was, my childhood established an enduring spark that remained burning in my heart, mind, and soul. The challenges I faced head on then afforded me a formidable foundation for facing the challenges that lay before me. The joys I found then encouraged me to find what wonders may come. The unconditional love that afforded me freedom, empowered me to love courageously. Thank you for
0: listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. If our stories help you on your journey, follow us on Instagram, Lineage Speaks the Podcast. Until the next episode, honor the light within you and let it guide your way on.